Well, as we continue today with our study of the book of 2 Corinthians that we're in, we come to the third chapter, and you know that if you've been doing your personal worship, and with this third chapter, we come to the topic, and it's a very practical topic, of the role or the significance of obedience in the life of a follower of Jesus. And here's why we come to this topic. Here's why Paul had to deal with this. Because Paul planted this church in the city of Corinth on the true gospel. Hang on to that. That's a key idea. And then he left. And then sometime after he left, here came some other preachers and teachers, and they came bearing these letters of recommendation. We don't know who wrote these letters of recommendation. It doesn't matter, as we'll see later. But they came with these letters sort of attesting to the authority of their teachings, and they came with a different gospel, particularly in regard to the issue of obedience. And here's the difference. Paul founded this church on a gospel that said that Almighty God the Father sent Almighty God the Son into this world as one of us. That through a supernatural conception that we celebrate with His birth and Christmas, the invisible God became visible. The intangible God became tangible. The uncomprehensible God came to us in the most comprehensible form, the most understandable form possible. Good grief, He came as a baby. Nobody's afraid of babies. They're diapers, yes, but the babies, no. Who grew into a boy. Who grew into a man. We get people. We can comprehend that. And he did that for a very significant reason. I mean, why did he have to come as a man? As an infinitely valuable man. Well, first of all, so that he could do for us something that none of us have done. Not a one of us, which is what? Perfectly obey the law of God in thought, word, and deed 100% of the time from our conception to death. Jesus came as our champion. He came as our representative. He came as our substitute. And for us and in our place, he did what we have all of us utterly failed and every day fail yet again to do, which is keep God's law perfectly. Obedience is kind of the key word for the day. And then having done that, what else did he do? He laid down his life. He willingly sacrificed his life, suffering infinitely, not just in his body, but in his soul to pay the price for all of our infinite sins. Have you ever thought about the fact that your sin is of infinite devalue? Let me just explain why. Because every time we disobey, one of the laws of our Creator God to whom we owe our obedience, whether we recognize that or not, we commit an offense against an infinitely valuable being. So we need a man for humans to live the obedient life. And we need an infinite man for humans to suffer infinitely in our place. To pay the infinite price that Almighty God requires of us as a result of all of our imperfections, all of our sin, all of our waywardness, all of our selfishness, all of that stuff. Guys, the true gospel is that God in the person of Jesus Christ perfectly obeyed His own law for us and then in our place as well He suffered and died that through faith in Him we might not just be forgiven and washed and made new and made clean and rid of our shame and all of our guilt and all of these things but so much more given God's favor, given God's love, given God's heaven, given God's family as we're brought into the family of God and adopted as His sons and daughters, all of it, all of it, all of it given. Therefore, if you think about the gospel mathematically, the true gospel that Paul founded, this church upon is Jesus plus absolutely nothing added by me equals all of that stuff and infinitely more. When he died, he said it is finished. 
He didn't leave anything else left for us, therefore, then to do. It's not like we've got to come to the finished work of Jesus and say, eh, I think that it's a little deficient, you know? I'm going to fill in the cracks with my imperfect obedience now. Now it's done. But these guys show up with their letters of recommendation, and they're saying, hey, you know, not so fast on that. I mean, think about this for a minute. If Paul's right about that, and if it's by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and we don't add anything, what do you do with the law of God then? Will we just throw that out? Is that what we do with that? What do you do with obedience and righteous living? I mean, how does this all fit together? They said, no, 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 check our letters. We come with authority, and we've got a little bit of a different gospel. So our gospel is, yes, you need Jesus, but you also need to be obedient if you're going to gain God's favor, if you're going to earn God's love, if you're going to enjoy God's heaven, if you're going to be welcomed into his family, Jesus, yes, and something added by you. And that something is your obedient living. And what Paul is doing in this chapter is he's going, whoa, hang on a second. That is absolutely not the case. That is not the true gospel. That's a false gospel. The true gospel, gospel of life. False gospel, gospel of death. True gospel, gospel of of righteousness and freedom. False gospel, condemnation. He's saying they're reaching back into the Old Testament and they're pulling out of it the Old Covenant and they're trying to add it to the New, to collate the two together, and it does not work. They don't fit. The puzzle pieces don't line up. You cannot, you cannot, you cannot do that. So he'll make that clear. But then you got to go, well, yeah, but I mean, they kind of sort of had a good question at least, which is what do you do with the law of God? I mean, what do you do with obedience? Where does that come in? And here's the answer to that. Obedience in the life of a believer matters. It's significant. It's a really big deal, but not as any part of the source of your salvation. You're not coming to the work of Christ and saying, I think I need to fill in the cracks here with my obedience. No, that's given. His obedience is perfect. It's done. You can't add to it. So not as any part of the source of your salvation, but as evidence of your salvation. It's the native response of a heart that has actually and truly been captured by Christ. That has been brought, to use biblical language, from death to life. That's not a small change. From darkness to light. That's not insignificant. It's the native response of a heart that has actually been captured by Christ. All of a sudden, your want-tos are different. Previously, you didn't want to. Now, all of a sudden, you do. So one of the examples that I've used here, I don't know, a zillion times over the years probably at this point, is that of a fireplace. I've said, look, if you've got a fire in the fireplace, guess what's coming out of the chimney? Smoke. Why? That's the way fire works. And it might be a great big fire and a ton of smoke belching out into the neighborhood, or it might be like a match, you know, that you throw into the fireplace that slowly burns, if you will. But nevertheless, if there's a fire in the fireplace, there is smoke coming out of the chimney, or to use a biblical example, that of a fruit tree. Okay, what does a fruit tree do? You know what a fruit tree does organically, naturally, natively, as a result of its nature, it produces fruit. And it doesn't have to work hard to do it. It just, it just happens, you know, you get an orange tree, it creates oranges, at least in season, because it's an orange tree. You've been made alive by the Spirit of the Lord. Here's how that begins to manifest itself in your life. 
Your heart becomes more like Jesus. Your values become more like Jesus. Your thoughts, your mind become more like Jesus. And your obedience becomes more like Jesus too. He makes you alive. And He calls you to learn how to walk with Him. To learn how to grow in your relationship with Him. Or as Paul is going to use the image at the very end of this, to behold the Lord. And in beholding the Lord, what happens? We become more and more and more and more in an ever-increasing fashion like the Lord. And the Lord is perfectly obedient. Does that mean that we're going to become perfectly obedient in this life? No. But it darn sure means we're going to grow in our obedience as we behold Him. So hang on to all of that and be thinking about it now as we jump in to this study. We pick it up in 2 Corinthians 3. Beginning in verse 1, where Paul says this, he says, Are we, meaning I, Paul, and all these guys that I'm traveling around planting churches with, are we beginning to commend ourselves to you people in this church in the city of Corinth that I myself planted once again? Like, are we restarting in our relationship? Is that what we have to do now, he says? Or do we need as some do? Who's the some? It's these peddlers. It's these preachers of this false gospel who have come with letters. What does Paul say? Do we need as some do? letters of recommendation to you or from you, because again, he plants the church, he leaves, and then they show up with their letters. Hey, look at our papers. You guys need to listen to us. And what happens in that church after that happens is at least some of the people in Corinth are going, Paul never showed us any letters. What's his authority? These guys have letters. And Paul's going, hey, you know, so are we starting over now? And if we're starting over, do I need to kind of reintroduce myself to you? And if I'm reintroducing myself to you, now do you require me to give you letters? Is that the way this is going to work? And he answers his own question in verse 3. He says, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation. Written on our hearts, he says, to be known and read by all. In other words, he's saying, if you need independent verification of the authority that is ours to preach the gospel that we preached to you, Go look in the mirror. Go ahead, it's okay. Check it out because what we want you to see and to recognize is that the Holy Spirit of God captured your heart. Began to work in your heart. Began to make you different. Began to manifest Himself miraculously amongst you as a people long before these peddlers showed up. He has authenticated us he says, you yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by all, to which he adds, and you show forth this. You manifest the reality of this, that in fact you are a letter from who? Because it's not from whoever signed the letters that these guys showed up with. It's someone infinitely greater. He said, letters written by Christ, letters from Christ, and delivered by who? Because it's not these guys. It's Paul and his companions, and I'm sorry, but I think this is kind of a humble way for Paul to kind of go, hey, um, I've actually seen the risen Jesus. Like, he appeared to me in the flesh. He's commissioned me as one of his apostles. I speak by the power of the Spirit and write, incidentally, God's Word. I think that's probably a little higher level than these guys who have rolled into town, can claim. He says, you're a letter, and you're written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. There it is. And not on, and this is really important, tablets of stone. 
but on tablets of human hearts. And the reason that's important is because that is a direct reference to the law of God, and in particular, to the Ten Commandments. And here's what these peddlers are doing. They're reaching back into the law. They're gathering up the Ten Commandments, if you will, and they're saying, when they say, yes, you need Jesus, but you also need to obey, they're trying to bring that into the gospel, and they're trying to add that onto the gospel. And what Paul is saying is, guys, you can't add anything to the gospel. And he says, you yourselves are the proof of that, and here's how I know it. Because I came, and the Spirit blessed my preaching, and He claimed you as His own people. And before these peddlers ever showed up with any idea of obedience, guess what you guys all started to do? You started to belch smoke out of the chimney. That is you. Your want-tos changed. You started to care all of a sudden about following Christ and growing in your relationship with Him. And and in growing to be more like Him, you became more obedient before anybody even brought up the idea of obedience with you. The gospel I preached to you said, no, 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 it's all the obedience of Jesus. He paid it all, all to Him I owe. So you certainly didn't do it because you thought that you needed to. You did it because you were transformed in here and suddenly you wanted to. It's a big difference. So he continues in verse 4. He says, such, meaning that, is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. And then he continues, and he says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from you. We don't get the credit for this, and he wants them to clearly see that. This is God's work. He says, our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a what? Because this is important too, of a new covenant, which presupposes an old covenant, And this is really thick technical stuff. So what's the old covenant? That's the law of God that God gave to Moses. It's the covenant that he made with his people through Moses on Mount Sinai as a part of which, on tablets of stone, he literally engraved the Ten Commandments. And what Paul is saying here is that with that supernatural conception, God made man in Christ, the infinite man, who's really man, with his birth, with his perfectly obedient life, with his sufferings and death and burial and resurrection for our sin, authenticated, validated, accepted by God by means of his resurrection, with his ascension into heaven, with his pouring out of the Spirit upon his people, that old covenant came to an end and a new covenant in the blood of Christ has been effected. And what these peddlers are doing when they say, you know, yes, you need Jesus, new covenant language, but you also need to obey old covenant languages to collate those two. And he's saying, nope, doesn't work. They don't fit together. And so now what he does is he goes on to compare the old and new covenants in an explanation of the fact that he's rejecting any idea of putting them together. He's saying they're incompatible. And now he explains why. Again, he says, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a, here it is, new covenant, and here comes the comparison. He says, now, not of the letter, which is a reference to the old covenant, but of the spirit, which is a reference to the new, for the letter does what? It kills. But the spirit, well, it's the opposite, isn't it? The spirit gives life. So then how does the old covenant kill? by coming to us with an impossible task, with an errand we cannot possibly complete, by coming to us and saying, okay, so here's the deal. If you want to gain God's heaven, you you want to earn his love, you you want to win his favor, you want to welcome, be welcomed into his family, then you need to keep 
His commandments perfectly in thought, word, and deed, like from conception to death. That's the standard. Jesus said as much. Matthew 5, verse 44. He says, oh, you want to do all that? Okay, here you go then. You therefore must be perfect. And here's what perfection looks like. Even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here's what we typically do. We compare ourselves with ourselves and with everybody else in our culture. And we watch TV and there's only bad stuff on TV. So we start to feel pretty good about ourselves. And we start thinking, well, surely if the Lord is going to reach down and grab anybody... I've got to at least be in that group. We compare ourselves with ourselves, and the Bible is going, why would you do that? That's the wrong comparison to make. The right comparison to make is with God Himself, with His moral perfections, with His absolute purity. By that comparison, we look a little different. We feel a little less confident. But in Christ, we should be absolutely confident because He led the good as God life for us. Then He suffered and died that He might pay for us what we owe God because we haven't. That's the gospel that Paul's promoting. And so he's comparing this old covenant, which has a letter that kills, with the new covenant, which has a spirit that comes and gives life from the dead spiritually. And he continues in verse 7, he says, now if the ministry of death, old covenant, that's what it brings us, when that's our means of trying to develop a relationship with God, the ministry of death, he says, carved in letters on stone like the Ten Commandments, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face. Okay, just hang on a second. What in the world is that about? Well, if you go back into the book of Exodus, it's about the giving of the law. Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai, if you know the story. And he spends 40 days and 40 nights in the presence of the living God. He comes back down with the tablets of stone engraved upon are the Ten Commandments. And unbeknownst to him, he is literally, in a visible way, glowing with the glory of God. And people kind of freak out by that. And you can sort of understand that. You know, I mean, if you saw a human flashlight, it would be a little unnerving, would it not? So what did he do? If you know the story, he veils his face. He hides this from other people so they don't wig out in his presence. But as Paul also says here in just a second, he hides this from everybody because he realizes, hey, you know what? The flashlight is running out of batteries. And the glory and the light thereof is fading. So right out of the gate, what are you learning about this old covenant? That it's a fading covenant. That it's going to give way to a newer covenant, a greater covenant. Indeed, that it's pointing toward that. That In fact, its role is to unmask us. To disabuse us of this idea that, you know, because we're probably in the top, I don't know, 20% morally as you look around maybe, at least 50%, we're fine it comes to us with the holiness and the perfections of God and says, okay, compare yourself to this. You're not fine. But you can be in Christ. Its role is to drive us to the new covenant, to the true gospel, and to the true Savior. And so again, he says, now if the ministry of death, old covenant, carved in letters on stone, Ten Commandments, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which glory, however, was being brought to an end as it diminished, as the the batteries ran out. 
if you will. Will not the ministry of the Spirit, which is the new covenant, have even more glory? Of course it will. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, which is what the law brings to us, the ministry of righteousness, which is what Christ gives to us, must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory, old covenant, has now come to have no glory at all because of the glory of the new covenant that so far surpasses it is the idea. For if what was being brought to an end, it was diminishing, it was fading, came with glory nevertheless, how much more, he says, will what is permanent have glory? Since we, he continues, the recipients of the new covenant through the gospel of Jesus Christ, have such a hope that the glory of the new covenant, that the glory of the one who is Christ, will never end. It will never fade. It will never diminish. Well, that makes us different from Moses. And here's what it makes us specifically, he says, since that's the case and we have that hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face. Why? So that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end as that glory faded. But their minds, he continues, were hardened. For to this day, when when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil that conceals its fading glory remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, he says, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, thus preventing them from seeing the old covenant for what it really is and receiving the benefit of the old covenant, which is what? To drive them to Jesus, to the new covenant. But, he says, when one turns to the Lord in faith, and in faith alone is the idea, the veil is removed. And then what do you experience when the veil is removed? He doesn't leave us wondering. He says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, here we go, there is freedom. But freedom from what? Well, from a lot of things, and we could make quite the list. But in this context, freedom from the impossible task of trying to gain God's favor and earn His love and win His heaven and and purchase our own way into His family by means of having to perfectly obey the whole of His law and thought and worded need 100% of the time in a way that matches the obedience of the lawgiver himself. In a way that perfectly, accurately reflects his character, his nature, his heart, his purity. Yeah, that's, uh, that's not going to happen. Which is why we need the new covenant. Which is the purpose of the gospel and of Christ. And the whole of what Paul's saying is, yeah, okay, you're right. Let that drive you to the one who with his perfect obedience and then laying down and suffering infinitely for we needed an infinite sacrifice. Made that sacrifice for all who come to him and claim him in faith. And you say, okay, well, that's great. But what do we do with obedience then? Because I think you said something about it being important. And it is, and again, not as the source, but as the fruit of our salvation, as the evidence of it, and, and this is significant, as the number one way that you and I do the thing that we're called to do, which is to do what? It is to reflect the glory of Jesus to a world full of people, guys, that needs to see what actual glory looks like. That's it. 
And here's the deal. As we learn to walk with Jesus, as we grow in our relationship with Jesus, or to use the image that Paul's about to use, as we behold the glory of the Lord who is Jesus, here's what happens. We become more and more like Jesus, more and more in our want-tos, more and more in our passions, more and more in our values, more and more in our obedience to His law. For as we become more and more like Jesus, we become more and more like the one who is perfectly obedient. And again, it doesn't mean that we're going to reach a state of perfection in this life. That's not going to happen. But it sure does mean that we grow in our obedience to the Lord. And so then listen to how Paul ends. He ends by saying this, verse 18. He says, and we all with unveiled face, because, hey, we're not afraid of people seeing it. It's not fading. It's growing, actually. Beholding the glory of the Lord who is Christ are what? Being transformed into the same image of that Lord, moving from one degree of glory to another in an ever-increasing fashion is the idea. For this glorious transformation comes from the Lord who is the Spirit, who wakes us up from the dead, who gives us light for darkness, who writes the law not in tablets of stone but upon our hearts, and who then enables us in community with one another to progressively learn to live it out. And you say, all right, well, look, you know, this is beautiful kind of poetic language by Paul, you know, beholding the glory of the Lord and transformed from glory to glory and all. That's great, and it's nice, and it's stirring, and it's moving, and I don't know what to do with it. Like, what does that actually mean? So, tomorrow I've got to wake up, Tom, and... How do I do that? And the answer to that is the rhythm of grace. How do you behold Christ as He is presented to you in the gospel? You engage in the pattern of the gospel. And you do that in your personal worship, and you do that in your corporate worship, you do that in your community groups. You engage in it indeed so much until the rhythm itself takes you over and it becomes your operating system for life. And the whole of life you view through the lens, if you will, of Christ presented to you through the gospel. I mean, what is the rhythm of grace? I know we've put language to it, but it's the pattern of the gospel. We remember God. That's the starting point. And that doesn't mean that we remember that He exists. I mean, that's nice. That's helpful. It means we remember who He is, what He's like, what His passions are. His mercy, His grace, His justice, His power, His wisdom, His forgiveness, His holiness. We remember God and then in light of Him as opposed to our neighbor or anybody else we see on the news or anyone else we know, we examine ourselves and here's what we find when we examine ourselves. Stuff that doesn't look like Him that we've done and that stand between us and Him. And here's what else we discover. We can't do anything about any of that stuff. We can't, as I've said in the past, rewind the tape of our life or flip through the book of our life and white stuff. I can't do anything about it. We can't now start doing all kinds of good things so we can outweigh all the bad things and hope that somehow the scales will tip in our favor. No, no, no. One sin, infinite devalue. I mean, we're done at that point. All we can do is come to the one whom we've offended and ask him to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, which is to remove the offense. So we remember Him. We're honest with Him about ourselves. We talk to Him about that. And then what do we do? We rest in His grace. What's that? It's the grace that God Himself makes available to us. 
He purchased for us through the perfectly obedient life of His Son and the infinitely valuable sacrifice of that Son in our place for our sin. And we remember who we are now. How? As a result of our efforts? Now. Wholly as a result of His. But it doesn't end there. Then we receive His wisdom. Why? Because we recognize fundamentally that, okay, wait a minute, so now I don't belong to me, I belong to Him. And I don't just need to be saved from my sin, I need to be saved from my selfishness, I need to be saved from my foolishness, I need to be saved from my, we'll put it in quotes, wisdom. There is a wisdom that is Tom's, and there is a wisdom that is this world's, and neither one of them tends to work. There is a wisdom that is God's, and it governs over this world as wisdom not only governs over it physically, it governs over it morally, and it in fact works. And so we come to him and say, Lord, speak for your servant listens. Your servant listens. It's who I am. It's part of my identity. And then by the power of the Holy Spirit and in community with one another, we go forth to do what God has told us to do. So the rhythm of grace is the pattern of the gospel. It's beholding Christ as he's presented to us in the gospel and living in the rhythm of grace or learning how to do that is interacting with it so much so that it overtakes us. It becomes the pattern, the filter, the lens, however you want to describe it, by which we view and then live the whole of life. So now I have a decision to make. What do I do? I realize it's not my decision to make. Well, how how did you come to that conclusion? Well, I remembered the Lord. I sat and thought about who he is and what he's like and what he values and all of those things. And then I confessed to him a lot of stuff about this decision that I'd frankly like to take out of his hands and I'd like to make for myself. And maybe that I have all kinds of stuff and ego or insecurity or whatever it is attached to it that I need to confess his sin because then I rest in his grace and remember who I am. I'm his. I'm a son or daughter of the king and I don't have anything to prove. Anything. I'm secure, I'm safe, I'm this, I'm that. Okay, Lord, you know what? It's your decision and I'm yours. So what is your wisdom that I might go out and do what you tell me to do by your spirit and with your people you face a temptation? How do you do that? Same way. I remember God. I'm honest with him about myself and the temptation. I rest in his grace. I receive his wisdom. And then I run (laughs) because that's typically the wisdom. But really, go do what he says. You're suffering and you face that. How do you process that? How do you go through that? I had a guy today who came up to me after the 9 o'clock service. It's 9-11, you may have noticed. He lost his daughter on 9-11. I had no idea. That's tough. How do you process that by faith? You remember who God is. You're honest with him about yourself. You rest and who you are in Him, and thankfully, who His daughter is in Him. You receive His wisdom that comes and says, you know, you haven't lost her for forever. There's a forever coming that's going to make this really long feeling period of time feel like not such a long feeling period of time, and in which you'll be united to her. Indeed, you are united now through Christ, but actually and then for forever. And you go forth in the hope of that. So the rhythm of grace is the pattern of the gospel. And learning to live in it is living in it and engaging with it so frequently that it overtakes you. 
And here's the deal. The gospel that saves you, therefore, then also becomes the gospel that forms you, that makes you, by which you behold Jesus. So Paul says, we're beholding Christ. And and as we behold him, we become what we behold. And so then what do we become? More and more and more like him. And you say, well, practically speaking, how do I do that? And I say, by taking your worship journal home with you today and tomorrow morning, turning to page seven and making time and space to begin to work through the passage of Scripture that we'll look at next weekend, which is 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 15, and working it through according to the rhythm of grace, coming ready to work it through together, to work it through in your community group. And if you're not in one, you can sign up for one online. Because here's the deal. You become what you behold. So what are you beholding? Because the one that you're called to behold is Christ. And when you do that, in ever-increasing fashion, you become more like Him and you do a better and better job of doing the thing that we're called to do, which is to reflect His glory to the world. And the world needs to see what real glory looks like. Jesus isn't walking around in a physical body here on planet Earth at the moment. But you know what? You are. I am. And we're called to reflect Him as people get to know us. Okay? So chew on that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so incredibly thankful that You have not left us to perish under the weight of our stuff. God, we're thankful for the One in whom You have made for us by faith all things right and are evermore making all things right, and will, upon His return, finally and definitively, and for forever, make all things right. We thank You, Lord, that when we come to the One that we have ourselves offended, helpless to do anything about the offenses, claiming that Jesus, our claim does not go denied. And instead of justice, we receive mercy. Instead of of anger or indifference, we receive love and grace. Instead of finding you turned from us, we find you embracing us. So Lord, let us feel your embrace and let us recognize that we're called to share that embrace by reflecting your glory to the people around us. So Lord, lay hold of us, speak to us about what we've been beholding, whatever that may be, and what it is we've begun to look like as a result. And turn our eyes, our lives, our hearts, our minds, our focus, the whole of our beings back toward the One who alone is glorious and who is truly alone beautiful, that we might become like Him. So do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.